0: All right, Colossians chapter 3 is where we're at in God's Word this morning. Picking up in verse 12 and reading through verse 17 again, but our focus this morning will be verse 16. Put on them as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against one another or against another, forgiving each other, As the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. And here's verse 16 where we'll focus this morning. And let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thanksgiving in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Since the reading of God's word. So in Colossians chapter 3, as we've been working through it, and just to give you a little bit of review of the chapters I've done each week in verses 5 through 11. We we talked about there about the things as Christians, as being a new self, as having the old self, the old man that was wicked and evil, who reigned over your life. He is gone and dead, and therefore the behaviors that were associated with him are to be taken off. And Paul talks about it, about putting it to death, or uses this word about putting away, like taking off clothes. And when you take off clothes, you don't want to run around spiritually naked, and therefore you need to put on new clothes. The new clothes with the new self that God has given you. And there are certain behaviors and lifestyle that goes along with that. And that's what we begin to look at in verses 12 through 17. Two weeks ago, we looked at what it looked like to put on love. Gentleness, showing gentleness to one another, bearing with one another, forgiving one another. And we also looked at peace as well, what it looks like to seek peace amongst the body of believers. Again, forgiving each other, holding short accounts against each other. You guys got to discuss that in your community groups this week. And we come this week at the third aspect of what we're going to put on as a new self in our new life as believers. And that is put on the word of God or the word of Christ as it says here in this passage. Now there is, as I pointed out the last couple weeks, there is an inherently corporate element to this passage. That this is not merely individualistic. That it's not just simply individuals putting on love and putting on peace and putting on the word of God. But he is talking to an entire church here. This is talking about a whole church that is going to put on the word of God and put on peace together. But I'm going to take two weeks to look at this idea of putting on the Word of God, or the Word of Christ, and having it dwell richly in us. and look at it from both the individual perspective, which is what we'll do today, and then next time I speak will be on the Word of putting on the Word of God more corporately, in particular what it looks like to teach and admonish one another corporately, and to sing together that this is the means by which we dwell richly in God's Word. But just as there is a corporate dimension that affects your individual walk with God, so it is when we individually are dwelling or have the word of Christ dwelling richly within us, it bubbles up and affects the church as a whole. It affects affects our corporate lives as well. And just as if the word of Christ dwells richly in us individually and it bubbles over into the church of God, so also if we as a church are dwelling richly in God's word, it will bubble over into our community, and our lives, elsewhere outside the church. So this is where we're going to go this morning. We're looking at what it is, this Word of Christ, what it looks like to put on the Word of Christ in us individually. I'm going to walk through this in four questions. In some ways, to show you, often one of the great ways to read Scripture, in particular when you're reading Paul, is to walk through the text and ask yourself questions, and then answer the very questions you're asking of the text from the text, or, if it's not directly in there, go find it elsewhere in the text. So, four questions this morning to help guide our time. The first question, what we'll begin with, is what is the Word of Christ? What is this Word of Christ that it mentions here? Put on, or let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly, it says. Well, one, my answer, um, rather sarcastically, if you spend much time in the church, when you read that Word, word of Christ, you'd say, well, duh, it's God's Word. It's the Bible. It's the B-I-B-L-E. It's Scripture. That that's what we're supposed to put on. And that's nice and that's true, yes, generally, that that's what we're supposed to be putting on in our lives. But Paul doesn't say simply, why don't you put on the Bible? Why don't you just put on the Word? Or why don't you put on the Word of God? He's something, he uses a specific phrase there to describe what kind of word we're to put on. And that is the word of Christ, That little prepositional phrase there, of Christ. Specifically, what Paul is talking about here is that we are to put on the truth of the revelation of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done in his life, death, and resurrection. In short, we're to put on the message of the gospel. We're to let that dwell richly in our hearts and our lives. So that's the specific. But even more generally... We look at, we, as we read the scriptures, that we are particularly to let the gospel dwell richly in us, but also as we understand the whole of the scriptures, we are to understand them Christocentrically, with Christ as the center. We ask this question, what is the Bible about from Genesis to Revelation. And the answer of the New Testament is this, the Bible is about and is centered upon Jesus Christ. Even the the creation accounts and all those laws and all those prophecies in the Old Testament, they are pointing to Christ. You see, Christ is not only the author of the word, but he is the center of the word. He is what the word of God is about. And where do we get that? We get it from Jesus himself. You may not be familiar with the passage in Luke 24 and what is called the road to Emmaus account. This is right after Jesus has been raised from the dead. And there's two men who are walking from Jerusalem to a little town known as Emmaus. It's a seven mile walk. A man named Cleopas and a friend of his. And they're rather despondent because in the previous days they've seen their, their Lord, their master Jesus, crucified on the cross. And then most recently they have now heard that his body is no longer in the grave. They are thinking that perhaps his body has been stolen, that his grave has been desecrated, and they're bewildered and confused by this, but also confused by the message that some people are bringing that's saying, wait a second, Jesus wasn't stolen, we saw him alive. And they're bewildered by this, and they're walking along to Emmaus, and suddenly Jesus comes on the merged lane of the path to Emmaus and begins to engage them in conversation. Now, they don't recognize that it's Jesus. Jesus hides their their eyes to who he is. But in the context of talking to them, Jesus asks them why they appear to be so dismayed. And they tell about what's been going on in the recent days. And Jesus then goes on in answering and engaging with their dismay by showing them, it says, how from the law through the prophets, it is all about him. It points to him. If you've ever read the book of Hebrews, there's a great chance that the book of Hebrews, if it's not written by Paul, that it's written by a priest, a former Jewish priest who has now become a believer, who is a Christian. And he shows in Romans how the ceremonial law, all these bizarre worship practices that Israel takes part in, how they all reflect and point to Jesus as the perfect priest, as the perfect lamb, the perfect sacrifice pointing to him over and over and over again we see this. We see this also in Acts, in the Gospels, or as, the, as the apostles go out and share the Gospel, that there's a man known who, who's known as the Ethiopian eunuch, and he has come to Jerusalem, and while he is there, he has purchased an Old Testament scroll. And we know that Old Testament scrolls are extremely valuable and extremely uh, uh, expensive because he only buys one. And he's taking this scroll back to who is known as Queen Candace of the Ethiopians. And as he's reading this scroll, the entirety of the Old Testament, he comes across Isaiah 53, and he's bewildered as he's reading the Old Testament. And God, his providence, leads Philip to the road where this eunuch, this Ethiopian eunuch, is traveling back home to Africa, and he engages with this eunuch. And this man, the eunuch asks him, what is this, this Isaiah 53? What is this, what are these passages telling me, telling me here? And Philip goes about describing how the, Old how the Old Testament is about Jesus. And in particular, Isaiah 53, about how it's the suffering servant and how Jesus has fulfilled those prophecies. The word of Christ is the biblical revelation about Christ. It's what he has said, it's what he has done, and it's his redemptive work. And it's that that's supposed to fill our lives, to dwell in us. This story, the centric story of the Bible that is on Christ Jesus. So that's question one. The second question is this. What does it mean for the word, the word of Christ, to dwell richly? Two words there, right? Dwell and richly. First, the word of Christ, what it means to dwell richly, means that this is not some sort of static, inert presence in our lives. But this is a living, dynamic, organic presence in our lives. Paul is using a word picture here. When do we use the word dwell? We're referring to our houses, houses. Where do you dwell? We don't actually say that. But we actually use the word dwell in our culture and our society. We're referring to the place where we live. What Paul is saying here is that the word of Christ is to come and live inside of you. Like if someone comes in and takes over a house. This has implications for us. If the word of Christ dwells in us, it comes to live in us. It's just like when you go to live in a house. When you move into a new house, what do you do? You immediately go, that paint color, it's going. Those drapes, they're not only going, but we're burning them in the backyard. That particular aspect, that tile or that gold-platedness in my bathroom, that's going away. We're getting rid of these things and we're putting new things. And that's what it's like when the Word of God comes to live in your life. You see, He is not the manager of the house. He's the owner of the house. And the Word of Christ begins to be the authority and the owner in your life. And it, has, it begins to ripple out, not simply in the kitchen, in the living room, in the public places, but into every nook and cranny of your life. That's what it is for the Word of Christ to dwell in you. That it begins to dictate what should be there, what should go, and what should stay, what should be added to the home of your life. What does it mean for, for this, this word, richly? To dwell richly. There's two ways in which we use, or two places in which we use this word rich in our own society, right? We're talking about finances, the rich guy, the lifestyles of the rich and famous. So we're talking about finances, and also we talk about richness in regards to food. And both of them refer to what? Abundance. And what we want is we want Christ, the word of Christ, to so dwell in us, to, be, to so emanate in our life and take over our lives that it richly dwells in us, that we are abundantly, the word of God flows out of us in all sorts of places. This is how it is with food, right? We want an abundance of food. People know what you eat when you've been eating rich food, right? When you make a, a dish that has tons of garlic, you're like the gospel of garlic for the rest of the day, aren't you? Well, in the same way, when the word of Christ dwells in you in a more positive sense than garlic, that you smell like Jesus, you look like Jesus, where you walk the abundance of who he is, of his word that controls your life, it flows out of you. This is what we're talking about here. And this is the connection between this individual aspect, when the word of Christ dwells in you so richly that it begins to flow and seep out of your life into your relationship with uh, with other people. We're going to come back to this connection later on in regards to what we've talked about the last couple weeks with peace and love. But finally there it says, "Let, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Let. And letting is a significant part of the problem, isn't it? Because we are full of other things. We are full of our Facebook feeds, and political pundits, and trashy novels, and TV, and I sound like my father here, but this is true. This is what we fill ourselves with. Instead of reading the Ruth's Chris of God's Word, we are chewing on the stale bread of this world. Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly, and that means you may have to root out the junk, the junk, the trash, the not-so-good stuff that's in your life. True riches, that's what we're after. The word is coming to engage our lives, to abide in us. Would you make room for it from your life? Root those things out or don't let them dominate so that the sweet truths of God's word may dominate in your heart. Third question. So what is the word of Christ? What does it mean for it to dwell richly? And last, and third, how do we seek to have the word of Christ dwell in us? This is good old-fashioned application components the Christian life. And for many of you, you've heard these things many, many, many times. These practices of the Christian life. Four words of how to seek to have the word of Christ dwell in us. One is you got to read. Second, you got to submit. Third, you got to memorize. And fourth, you got to meditate. Read, submit, memorize, meditate. First is read. The Word, what do we do with words? Either we listen or we read them. Inherent in this command, inherent in having the Word of Christ dwell in you, is reading God's Word. If you only ever hear Scripture read, if you only ever read Scripture at church on Sundays, that is, you're, you're starving your soul. It's interesting, uh, during much of the Middle Ages, where the, the practice of the Roman Catholic Church, part of it was, was they would have daily Mass, And some of that was theological because they didn't trust the people with the word of God. And that's bad. We trust the people with the word of God. The priesthood of all believers. But second, the reason why they would do that is because the people were what? Illiterate. And so only those who were educated could feed them the word of God, who could read. And therefore, in order to feed them the word of God, they would have church on a daily basis. The same thing happened even after the Reformation, is they would continue to have church on a daily basis. Because even while there was more and more people who could read, there were still many in the society who were illiterate. And so they so desired and knew they needed to hear from God's word and to be fed and restored and revived by God's word that they would have church on a daily basis to come hear God's word. But that is not the case for us, is it? You are quite illiterate people. We have a great school educational system that teaches us how to read. We have our Bibles on our iPads and on our phones in all of our house. And some, many of us have multiple Bibles under the seats in our cars. They are everywhere. We don't have a problem with access to God's word. But we must read it. We must pick it up and read. This is the story of St. Augustine, who in his testimony about how he became the new, how he to know God, was he was weeping over his particular sin that he had run back to on a particular day. And he heard children out behind his, his, his yard where he was at saying, Tole lege, take and read. Tole lege, take and read. And he picked up God's word and fell in love with it. This is who we are. We must read God's word. Second, we must submit to God's word. Not only can you, you, must you read it, but you also must read it with a view towards obeying it. This is coming to the word with a right posture and a right perspective about the word. The word is authoritative. And therefore, because it is authoritative and it dictates and directs, that we come to it reading with a posture of submissiveness. Too often we come to the word of God above the word. I'll get to that in just a second. But James 1, verses 22, points this out and calls us to to be not only hearers of the word, but doers, it says. For anyone is a hearer of the word, it says, and not a doer. He is like a man who looks intently at a mirror and then forgets what he looks like. This is who we are. Valuing the word of God means more than simply putting God's word in, in symbolic high places. It means more than simply just having a massive study Bible. It means you pick it up and you read it and you read it with a desire to be controlled and guided, but more than guided, but commanded by it. Do you stand under the text or do you stand over the text? So often how pastors talk about our engagement with the Word of God, even as we come to study it to get ready for Sundays. Am I standing over the text or am I standing under the text? If you stand under the text, it means God's Word is your commanding officer. What it says, you do, which means we don't have the right to preach and teach things that are contrary to it. Which means even if the cultural mores change, we don't get to go with those cultural mores. We have to preach and teach what God's Word says because we sit under it. It is our commanding officer. But then but then the, ne- the opposite of that, the negative, though, is those who stand over the text. And here those who stand over the text don't see it as their commanding officer, but they see it as their advisor, It's their guide. I used this before with this illustration from Pirates of the Caribbean. I love where they have the Pirates Code. They're always talking about the Pirates code, Code in the Pirates of the Caribbean. And they're use, they use it for excuses for why well, they got to do certain things, bizarre things at various times during the movie. But then there's other times where they just go, eh, we don't want to do it. And someone will go, wait, what about the code? And they go, well, it's more like guidelines. It's some guidelines. And that's so too often how we treat God's word. It's our, it's our nice, sweet little counselor sitting up here on our shoulder just going, whispering sweet spiritual nothings in our ear. But it leaves us, when we have that perspective, with us still in the driver's seat. With us still as being the means of command, that we are the captain. And God's word is simply guiding us and giving us nice advice, but that's not the way it is. It does give many many good guidance, much good advice, but more than that, it is our commanding officer. So let me ask you, when you read God's word, are you going to learn from it? The act with a the, with the disposition that's saying, I will submit to this. This may seem self-serving. I would also say this. Do you engage and hear the word of God preached and proclaimed with that same attitude as well? Do you come to sit in judgment on the deliverer of the word, which is legitimate? Or do you primarily, though, come to sit under the judgment of the word? Soren Kierkegaard has said this. The great existentialist uh, philosopher said, People have an idea that the preacher is an actor on a stage, and they are the critics blaming or praising him. What they don't know is that they are the actors on the stage. And he, the preacher, is merely the prompter, standing in the wings, reminding them of their lines. I love that quote. It gives me a great reminder of what my my job is. And it also makes me willing to say each and every week, no matter how redundant it is, I will give them the gospel. I will not lean on man's wisdom. Because the gospel is what we need to be revived by. And that you are the ones on the stage. That we're living out before a watching world. But we are to be the hands and feet of Jesus. And it is my job week in, week out to you. To come in when you have forgotten who you are. When you've forgotten God's calls and commands. And to whisper from the sidelines and say, oh, this is who you are. And this is what he's called you to. Will you give heed to the word of God. I love this in Psalms, in Psalms throughout, David's always talking about how much he delights in God's word. I think that reflects well who the Christian is. The Christian is this, the, the Christian is someone who loves to have God tell him or her what to do. God, will you just boss me around today? That would be awesome. Third, third, memorize. So you read it, you submit to it, you memorize it. This is a discipline that was talked about a lot, at least when I was a kid, and was something that my parents encouraged me to do, but I don't hear it talked about that often in the church anymore. In large part because this is really hard. I found this particularly as I've gotten older. Right? I learned five languages between the age of 15 and 25, but I can't seem to memorize my child's Bible verse from the morning anymore. That's the difficulty, I guess, of getting older. But we are commanded, I think we are called, to memorize God's word over and over and over again. Psalm 119, David says, "Um, I have hidden God's word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Now listen, I I don't want to put a law on you and, and crush you with this. But what I, I would call and challenge you that at various times in the seasons of your life as Christians, that maybe instead of simply doing large chunks of Scripture where you read a bunch, maybe that you take a smaller chunk and say, I'm going to memorize this for the next month. A Christian who has come to know and love God wants God's Word to be in their hearts and in their minds. I may also say this, I, I, for your children, if you have young kids like I do, this, at that age, it is absolutely important that you teach them to memorize. What has become rather um, a, a, a popular thing now, and particularly in homeschool ranks, is classical conversations or classical ways of educating. We see it in various, there's different classical uh, Christian schools as well. And, and not everything there that I like, but there is some things, and one of the things that they seem to follow is the way the brain works. And they see the early years of education as being memory dump. I mean, you are just because your brains are sponges when you're 4, five, six, seven, and 8 years old. And you just soak everything up. So get your children to memorize God's Word. The verses that I most remember are still the, memory, the verses that I learned as a 6 and 7 year old. Not the verses I learned as a 20 and 21 year old. My brain worked better. Your children's brain, their little sponges, fill it with God's Word and then over time, let them engage with the theory and, and work it out critically as they get older. But give them God's Word and let them memorize it. And what we want, we want to memorize God's word so that we can do the fourth thing throughout the day, and that's meditate. We want to meditate on God's word. Psalm 1, verses 1 and 2, David says this Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. So think Facebook every time when you read verse 1. All right? Walks on the counsel of the idiots, or the way of sinners, or scoffers. That's Facebook, and Twitter, and Instagram. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. What does he do? He meditates on it day and night. Meditate on Scripture is the act of filling your mind with the Word of God. Now, this is different. People have been fussing about Christian yoga over the last couple of years. I don't understand the fussing about the Christian yoga. It's so much different than Eastern mysticism, transcendental meditation. Eastern religion, when it's talking about meditation, it means emptying your mind. When we talk about meditating as Christians and biblical meditation is you filling your mind, not emptying your mind. Eastern meditation is you don't want to think about anything. You just want to try to just be nothing, like no wavelengths. Christian, Christian meditation is saying I'm going to fill it with the gospel of Jesus Christ, with the character and the beauty and the wonder of who God is. And that's what I'm going to do. Let my mind be filled with these things. This is how Jesus was from a young age. He so knew God's word that even the Pharisees and the men in the temple were amazed by his understanding of the word. Now it helps when you write the word like he does. But so also we must be a people who know God's word and meditate on it day and night. What this means is you chew on it over and over and over again. I've shared this before but meditate, the Hebrew word that undergirds this word meditate is the same word that describes cows chewing their cud. Isn't that a sweet picture? where a cow chews it back and forth, back and forth, and then swallows it, and then they spit it back up, and they chew it a little bit more. Awesome. So just go through your life imagine yourself as the Chick-fil-A cow, but instead of chewing on chicken nuggets, well, you can do that as well. I see a lot of people doing chewing on Chick-fil-A nuggets and reading their Bibles at the same time. If you want to do that, that's great. You'll both get really, really spiritually heavy and physically heavy. And, and, but you chew on God's Word over and over and over again. This is why memorization is of value. Can I say this as well? It's just a practical application. Some of you, have, you're the pace of your life, and men in particular for us, and women, when your children come in and wake you up and get you out of bed, is we feel like we have this very limited amount of time in the mornings, and I think, but David says, in the mornings I dwell on God's word. I, and I've, I've fussed at us at various times that we, are not, we don't study deeply. But what I, I would say this. If you only have 10 or 15 minutes, get in God's Word for 10 or 15 minutes. And then on your way to work, don't turn the radio on. Don't put the podcast on. Don't put the Audible book on. Think about those things. Let them go and mull over in your mind. That's what meditation is. The Word of God with meditation may be far more valuable and applied to our life than an hour of reading without any mental engagement. So the Word of God. Let me just give you some aspiring quotes from Brother Lawrence on this idea. He says this, if we were to be people who walk with the Word of God and meditate constantly. He writes a book called Practicing the Presence of God. He was a great, cool monk. I'd encourage you to get his book. But he says, this: How happy we would be if we could find the treasure of which the gospel speaks. All else would be nothing. As it is boundless, the more you search for it, the greater riches you will find. Let us search unceasingly, and let us not stop until we have found it. Let the, more, the gospel of Jesus, over and over again, he says this later on in the book, think often about God, day and night, in your business and even in your diversions. He is always near you and with you. He is Emmanuel, therefore never leave him alone. Pester God with your thoughts. Brother Lawrence, he's a great example for us. Last question. What are the results of the word dwelling richly in us? This is what we want. We want good results. We want good things in our life. Psalm 19, David says this. It's a great passage on how God reveals himself both in creation, but then specifically and specially through his word. It says this. The law of the Lord is perfect, and here's what it does. It revives the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The command of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. I don't have time to go through all the wonderful uh, benefits and consequences of having the word dwell in you, but simply that one reviving the soul. What is that word revive? What is happening there? Revive. Bringing back to life. The word has power to make us alive. So you feel dead spiritually, get in the word. You feel depressed spiritually, get in the word. You feel like you don't know God at all, and maybe you don't, get in the word. The elixir for your soul, the means by which you are made alive again, is through the word of God. This is the testimony throughout the New Testament, throughout the Old Testament, from page one to the last page. John 6, 68 says this, that Jesus, in his words, holds life. First Peter 1 Peter 1:23 says, you have been born again not of perishable seed, but of imperishable seed. Through what? The living and abiding word of God. Lastly, last one, James one eighteen. Of his own will he brought us forth. That is a birthing narrative. By the word of God of truth. Word of truth. That we should be a kind of first fruits of his Creatures. You want to grow in various areas of your life, then you got to know God's Word. You see, this is how God has always created and how He's recreating. In Genesis chapter 1, it says that in the beginning was God, and the world was formless and void. And then what happened? God spoke, and the world was recreated. We broke our covenant with God. We ran away from God. And then what happened? In order to redeem us, He sent the one. In John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Once again, what did God do in order to revive us and redeem us? He spoke through His Son, Jesus. You've got to hear the Word, you've got to know the Word. It makes us alive, and this is the constant, this is the constant testimony of so many believers who are running away from God in every single way, and they, God's Word invaded their life, and it changed them. Frank Barker, some of you know Frank Barker, he was, he's an aged man now, but an incredible evangelist. He started Briarwood Church in Birmingham, Alabama. Many of our campus outreach students would be familiar with him and his ministry. He helped start campus outreach uh, many, many years ago. But his, his life, he was not always a great evangelist and pastor and preacher. There was a time in which he was a pilot. And he wasn't just a pilot, but he was a drunken pilot, which is a scary thing, right? he lived in Pensacola as many uh, naval, I think it's right, is that Naval Air Force or Air Force in Pensacola? Dwight, where are you? Navy. Navy, there we go, thank you. He was a, he was a naval pilot. And during that time, he was struggling with alcoholism and one night in particular in which he was exhausted and inebriated, he fell asleep at the wheel and ran off the road. And right as, as he was running off the road, he woke up just in time to keep himself from hitting a tree. Now, if you're a little bit older, you may remember in the deep south that back in the day, often people used to put signs with Bible verses and trees all over the deep south. And as he ran up under this tree and stopped just in time before you hit that tree, he looks up, and lo and behold, there's a verse, and it says this, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you shall be saved. <laughs> and God done it. He did. He believed it in that moment. This is a little bit more uh, tangible than maybe Jesus take the wheel. He says he, the, he, he took the wheel, but God said, I want your life. I'm going to save you. And he did so through the word, and his life was never the same. The word of God restores and it revives the soul. Derek Kigner on Psalm 19 talks about how what this does is it, it restores you to who you were always made to, do, to be. He says this word soul, actually what's going on there is the Hebrew word for psyche, which is identity. That it restores your identity to the way it ought to be. Where in creation, God spoke his beings into existence. And he told us who we were and what our identity was. But when we separated from God, we listened to all other things. Many things saying, what is my identity? Who am I? And in being redeemed and revived, we are being retold who we are in Christ Jesus. And you can live the way that you have been designed to live is the same thing we see in one of, uh, of C.S. Lewis's accounts of the Chronicles of Narnia series and the book called The Silver Chair in which there's a particular king who ruled the land, but his land and his, his empire was taken over by a wicked witch because she captured him and put him under a spell through this particular chair. And he was essentially kind of put under the spell whenever he sat in this chair and he could not think and remember that he was the king of this land. But every night around midnight, through his subconscious, he would begin to remember who he was, that he was the king of the land. And so every night at midnight, they would have to make sure they tied him up to the chair. But one night, there were some children who came into the cave where he was incarcerated and they set him free right around that same time and he took his sword and he destroyed that chair and he remembered who he was. That's what God does for us through his word. Through his word, he destroys the lies of the devil that are telling us of all the der- terrible identities that we hold in our lives, and he's giving us and renewing us to the identity that God always had for us. And when that happens, when that happens, there's two particular areas we can, we're going to point to this morning. When that happens, a couple areas change. Many areas change. But not to go forward to next week, we're going to talk about teaching and admonishing each other and singing. I'm going to look back when you've been restored to your identity, when the word of God has given you power and life and revived you, there's two things that you can begin to do for the first time. One is love. The second is seek peace. See, these connections in what we put on, they are not disconnected. We put on love. We saw that two weeks ago. We put on peace. We saw that last week. We see we're putting on the word of God this week. And they are not just kind of three disjointed uh, characteristics or things behaviors that we're to put on. But they feed one another. That when you love God, you want to read his word. When you read his word, you find out about the love of God. When you have peace in Jesus, you want to run to the word of peace. And you want to find out about him. When you read the word of peace, it gives you peace. When you read the gospel, they feed one another. And so the word, first and foremost, gives us love when it revives us. 1 John 2.5 says this, But whoever keeps his word, my word, God's word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. This, that by this we know that we are in him. The keeping and obeying of the word displays that we possess the love of God that we talked about a couple weeks ago. But it's also through reading, the word, through reading the word of God that we come to love God and to know God. By obeying what the word says, we show that we love God. But by reading the word of God, we come to know God or love God in the, in, in the beginning anyways. We come to know how great he is. Ray Cortez is a pastor in Florida, tells a story about a woman who became a believer through their church. She became a believer primarily through her daughter, who was going to the youth group at that time of that church, and they gave her a Bible, and she took this Bible home, and her mother was appalled. She didn't believe in God, she didn't believe in anything spiritual, and she was quite concerned that her daughter was beginning to read this Bible thing a lot around the house. So one night, being a very concerned mother, she couldn't sleep, and so she decided that she'd kill two birds with one stone. She'd read this Bible and find out what this Bible is saying and what's trying to, teach, to her, teach her daughter, and in second, she was hoping it would put her back to sleep. So she begins to read the Bible, and she opens it up, and she knows there's an old section and a new section, and she's really not sure what those mean, and so she says, well, the new section, maybe that's the updated version, Bible 2.0. And so she starts with the New Testament, and she begins with Matthew, and she reads Matthew around 11 o'clock at night. She reads Mark. She reads Luke, and around 3.30 in the morning, she gets halfway through John. She finally stops, and she goes, I don't know what I'm doing, but I love this Jesus, and I want to live for him, whoever he is. She, her life was radically turned around. You see, when you read the word of God, you fall, you fall headlong in love with the one who is lovely, the beautiful God and Savior, and you begin to display love not only to him, but also to those around you. The word also gives us peace. Last week, the first thing I said in pursuit of peace is we got to think, what are we thinking on? What are we thinking about? This, the word of Christ. The first step towards having peace in your life is preaching to yourself the truth of God's words. When you have the word of God there, it, it tells you of your new identity. It tells you of your inheritance. It tells you of your security. And that makes you a person who is peaceful. Makes you a person who is gentle. Makes you a person who is kind. So often, many of us are gruff, and angry individuals. We have conflict in so many of our relationships because we're seeking security and significance in all these ways, and we're running away from God's word. But the word of God has the power not just to change your heart, but to change your very disposition. And wouldn't that be nice for some of us? You see, Jesus says that my project is not simply to save you, but to make you beautiful. In Ephesians 5, it talks about the groom's love for the bridegroom. And it says there in Ephesians 5 that he makes, he washes the bridegroom with the water of the what? The word. The church is made beautiful through the word. Ben Carson, you know Ben Carson, right? Famous neurosurgeon who's now running for president, at least for the next couple weeks. He's the antithesis of Donald Trump, isn't he? Even when Donald isn't there, you think he's there. And even when Ben is at the debates, you're not sure he's there. You see, in his autobiography, it hasn't, he hasn't always been a very gentle man. He comes across as very meek and mild. That's what people love about him, and that ought to be—that's a character quality that ought to be adored, particularly in our political scene. But he said he used to be a very angry man in his autobiography, and he was so angry, such, such in eighth grade, that he got in a fight with one of his classmates, and he pulled out a knife and went to stab his classmate in the stomach, and he hit his classmate's belt buckle, and his knife broke. And he was so moved by the, by the anger that was in him and was so terrified by what he had just about done that he ran home immediately from school, locked himself in the bathroom, and wept. And eventually he took up God's word. He opened up to Proverbs 16.32, which says this, He who is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit is more powerful than he who takes a city. He said he meditated on that verse over, And over and over again. And guess what? It changed him. You angry, you mad, you're not a man or woman of peace. The Word of God changes us and gives us that peace. The Word of God makes us, gives us hearts of gladness and joy in what God offers us. We'll close there and head to the table. Elders, you can come forward as we pray. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are the word of God, that you have not hid yourself from us and what we need, but you have expressed to us the beauty of who you are, that you have made yourself known. And so, gracious God, I pray that every time we get in the word and every time we we engage with you and how great you are, that it would give us even a deeper and deeper and deeper longing to be in your word. That your word would be the means by which we view life and react to life and see life. That it would be the authority in our lives that we would submit to it. Gracious God, we thank you that your word saves. We come this morning to celebrate the living word Jesus, the true bread, who came and laid down his life on our behalf. And so, Lord, we set this bread, which represents your body, and this, blood, this wine or, or juice that represents your blood, which was shed for us, and we set them apart for this special work this morning. As we take and eat, as we remember your gospel, would your spirit move, move forth through simple elements to encourage our hearts, to fill us with the love of Christ and the word of Christ by your spirit. We ask that you do that with, uh, for us and in us in these very moments. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.